I'm Amy Lattimore. And I'm Brian. We are co-founders of With Wellness, a wellness club for employees, where our mission is to create space for you to learn to care for yourself and those you love. Welcome to the Priorities Podcast. In a world filled with ongoing, high stress, and tough demands, how do we begin to prioritize? I mean, like, for real, prioritize who and what matters most. Throughout this podcast, we'll speak to everyone from expert practitioners and academics to everyday moms and dads. During each conversation, we'll look for observations, learnings, and insights to help us all to prioritize and deprioritize when and where we need to. And while we can't prioritize for each other, we can prioritize with each other. So with that, let's get into this episode. On today's episode, we speak with decision engineer and executive coach, Michelle Florindo. We chat about the components of a decision, how our emotions can be leveraged when faced with difficult choices, and how we can take steps to make decisions that help us align with our joy. Okay, let's get into it. Michelle, so Hi, we Michelle. just came out of your Hi. office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were deep in it and it was introspective. It was clarifying. It was intentional. Mm-hmm. It felt like it was an emotional yes. time mm-hmm. as well, which I think really kind of bridges the gap between what we wanted to discuss with you, Michelle, as it relates to decision-making and emotions, particularly as it relates to prioritizing wellness and joy and all the things that that might bring you joy. And so, yeah, grateful that you're here and excited to dive into this conversation with you. We've had the honor of kind of experiencing your expertise just now. I'd love to kind of like take a step back for our listeners and kind of set the scene, I'll say. Envisioning you're at a dinner party and everyone is going around the table introducing themselves and your turn comes up. What do you say? I tell people I'm a decision engineer and an executive coach. And that usually prompts some questions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What is actually the most common question you get after that? Like what is... It's usually... Wait, decision engineer? Mm-hmm. What's that? That's a thing? Wait, what? <laughs> Tell me more. I probably would be that person. Like, wait, um, coming from business school, I'd be like, hey, so are you dealing with game theory? You know, how much of this is all about logic and getting mm-hmm. to how much of this is quantitative and getting. And I would be happy to talk about game theory or probabilistic analysis and decision trees, because that is part of my background. I'll go ahead and explain both pieces more. So I'm a decision engineer and an executive coach. Mm -hmm. In my line of work, I do a lot of executive coaching where I am coaching leaders and organizations primarily about how is it that they shift their daily micro decisions so -hmm. that they can show up in their next level of leadership. And then the decision engineering side is where I am running workshops, I'm teaching courses, helping people understand how do they develop the skills to make better decisions. And uh, decision engineer is a nod to my academic background. I had studied decision analysis at Stanford. It's uh, one part of the management science and engineering department. And so yes, it has its roots in business, like corporations, academia, the head of the department while I was there consulted with NASA and decision analysis is one of those things that was Mm -hmm. used to mitigate and assess risks of space shuttles or like really large multi-million dollar investments. 
But what I found was that, especially in the past dozen years or so that I've been coaching, decision-making is something that produces a lot of stress in Mm. people, often because we've never been taught a process. And yet, decision analysis, decision engineering came with so many great tools. I mean, if you think about it, engineering is all about basically problem solving or building solutions using set structures and methods, right? And so I find I'm doing the same, but helping people make individual decisions, or at least supporting them in the process of doing that. And if you think about it in the business world, there is lots of data of some sorts, there's lots of financial data. In our own lives, there's different types of data. And I bridge the gap in helping people understand how is it that they can make sense of all of the different inputs they may be sifting through in the decisions they face mm. in work or life. I love that. Yeah, to me, those are are all very new to me and engaging in this conversation with you. I didn't go to business school. So even all those things around game theory and things like that, those are things that were not a part of my vernacular. In thinking about the fact that these were kind of processes that we were never really taught growing up or what have you, talk to me a little bit about like the actual process of making a decision. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's a couple things that I want to make sure that I touch on. And again, part of what I do is try to take these really sophisticated tools that have existed in decision analysis and make them accessible to the general public. So not just people who've gone to business school, but anybody, because everybody makes decisions, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think the first thing that I wanted to speak to was one of the things that makes decisions really hard and stressful, and that's people want to be able to make a good decision, Mm -hmm. and they're often afraid of making a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that resonates with either one of you. It does. That type of thinking, when I'm running workshops, I'll often ask people, what are some of the feelings that come up when you need to make a big decision? And inevitably, I'll hear maybe a little bit of excitement, but a whole lot of stress, anxiety, fear, regret, fear of regret, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And so there's that fear of making a bad decision, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, people will tell me, well, I'm afraid that something bad will happen. Oh, that's interesting. And so many people mix up or there's a a myth that a lot of people are falling victim to where they believe that the quality of their decision is the same as the quality of the outcome. Mm -hmm. And that's usually where I like to start. I like to start by busting this myth because if we believe that, oh, if something good happened, I made a good decision. If something bad happened, I made a bad decision. It fails to recognize the fact that there are often other things in play that affect outcomes. So it's actually very possible to make a good decision, but have a bad outcome. Equally, it's possible to make bad decisions, texting while driving, and have a good outcome. Nothing happened. (laughs) doesn't mean it was a good decision, right? So I think where I want to start is making sure that people understand that the quality of a decision is separate and distinct from the quality of the outcome. And so what that means then is we should focus on, yes, this process that you talked about. Every single decision, even though we usually focus on just the picking part, right? Like, what did you pick? Do this, do that. There's actually three components to every single decision. And I'll teach it in the same way that Professor Ron Howard, one of the fathers of decision analysis, used to teach it at Stanford. And so he would talk about every decision is like a stool. It has three legs. The first leg is what are your objectives? Basically, this is what matters to you. What is it that you value? What is it that you're trying to get in the outcome, right? 
And I think that's the piece that's probably most relevant to the conversation we're having today around priorities. But it's so interesting how often people may not even take time to define mm-hmm. what are their objectives before making a decision. So that's the first component. Second component of any decision is what are your options? Really, like what is the full range of the different paths that you can choose among? And again, sometimes we don't spend enough time going beyond the obvious options to really explore what else may there be. And, you know, once we can define our objectives, there's even room to explore. Can we create more options that are aligned with those objectives? The third component of any decision is what information do you have? And I'll be really specific about the type of information I'm talking about. What information do you have on how various options fulfill the objectives that you have? Sometimes the information piece is about what information you have. Sometimes it's about what information don't you have. Is that information gettable? Is it actually knowable? Sometimes it's not. And you know, after you assess what is the state of the information that you have, then you can also see, well, what can be done and how do I want to move forward? But I think at, at the most basic level, we can improve our decision making even just by identifying the fact that there are three components whenever we're facing one. So can I literally just name, Amy and I had a conversation with you mm-hmm. right before this yeah. around a very big decision that some people have the benefit of exploring together in partnership mm-hmm. or alone of whether they want to be a parent for the first time, second time, third time, and so on. There's another decision that happens quite regularly here, and it's where are we going to eat? <laughs> um, <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It is a common conversation. And despite the repetition, I don't know if I'm getting better at it. Um, (laughs) My question for you is the process. I was thinking through in my head as we think about dinner. What are my objectives? What are the options? And to what extent, what data do I have for the options meeting the objectives? Mm -hmm. But I would imagine that there are certain decisions, Michelle, that allow for, depending on the, you know, whether they're micro, macro, whether there's a lot of anxiety related to them or not, we make them faster. Um, We make them with perhaps, dare I say, intuition. I don't really know the the relationship between Mm. intuition and decision making. It's the quick quick thinking or there's um, fast thinking and slow thinking. So yeah, sometimes it makes more sense to use the fast thinking. Yeah. Mm. So can you help us unpack almost as if we were to think about the process and the methodology around decision-making and mm-hmm. when to deploy that based off of the type of decision and should we be employing certain things around fast thinking and slow thinking or yeah. any guidance you'd have for us there? Oh, I'm so glad that you mentioned this because I think that's something that I forgot to mention up front, that yes, there are different types of decisions that have different levels of impact on our lives. And so for the smaller micro decisions each day, it may not make sense to expend the slow thinking energy. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to do fast thinking energy. And I think it's useful to think about what is the magnitude of the impact of this decision? What we're going to eat may not impact. Although that decision over time, multiple times, I speak as someone who has high cholesterol, (laughs) Mm -hmm. may have an impact. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that respect, it is useful to identify like, okay, Where are there really big decisions where I might want to use my slow thinking? And what are the smaller decisions that do make sense to use the fast thinking? And even in the fast thinking bucket, are there series of decisions that may end up having a large magnitude? Like, for example, when I'm working with 
executive coaching clients, the way in which they choose to engage with their teams and how they communicate actually does end up having a big impact mm. on their leadership. And also, like I said, micro decisions we make about whether we what we eat and whether we exercise may have bigger implications. And that's where it may be useful to at least acknowledge like, okay, what are some of the overarching objectives here? And can I implement systems so that I can make some of the smaller decisions more automatic? Like I don't keep hot, like flaming hot Cheetos in my house because it would just <laughs> enable really bad decision-making that over time will have an impact on me. That's just they are an good. example. <laughs> they are so tasty and so bad for you. So bad. Or at least maybe not for you. For me, I have high cholesterol on both sides. And so it does actually have an impact. But I mean, I think you make a good point. And I'm going to quote one of my friends, Ian Scott, talks about it in terms of, okay, when you're thinking about different decisions, is this like, do I want to go get coffee? Or is this about getting a face tattoo? <laughs> different approaches for different decisions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, one definitely will have a very lasting impact on everything you do moving forward. <laughs> and my um, answer to both is yes. Yes. He's been talking about <laughs> face tattoos, honestly, for the past several years. And <laughs> I, I need you to help guide him, Michelle, to the, the answer being no. I think <laughs> next <yes>. session. <laughs> Amy's got a lot of concerns. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing attractive, only concerns. <laughs> so... Part of the reason why I thought it was really important to have you on specifically and to chat with you is because mm -hmm. if we're talking about prioritizing our wellness and our joy and priorities more general, you have to actually know how to make a decision. You have to know how to prioritize. And mm -hmm. one of the things that you speak so beautifully about and you when we were in our coaching session with you you just put so much value on which were our emotions and mm -hmm. I think it's amazing and it's important you know we we believe that joy reigns supreme here at with like that is what we are shooting for but I've also lived by this idea that we shouldn't make emotional decisions I don't know where mm. that came from but it's just like part of when I'm making a decision I'm like no let's leave the emotions out because then I will inevitably end up making a bad decision, having a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. You believe otherwise though. Yes, I do. And this is where I, I definitely differ from some of my colleagues in the mm. decision analysis field where they may be on the side of, yes, let's try to keep emotions out of decision-making. And I, my personal belief is that emotions are an extremely valuable source of data. Same thing with even some of our physical feelings, like the somatic information that mm -hmm. may be arising in the face of decision-making, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to decisions that we are making that are impacting our own lives. I can sense that there are reasons why emotions get a bad rap. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes when we are in a triggered emotional state or an elevated emotional state, it turns off our ability to use that slow thinking part of our brain. And so we may lose a bit of the ability to deliberate and process there. And I think that's where emotions get a bad rap. But just because emotions at that level can keep us from incorporating that part of our intelligence doesn't mean that we should throw them completely out of the process, mm -hmm. right? Like I am all about how is it that we make decisions where our head, our hearts, and our bodies can be on the same page. Mm -hmm. And the first step in that is just even acknowledging the value that they have and being willing to acknowledge what's coming up. And I think this is the difference, right? There's like a headspace 
the meditation app. I think they're mm-hmm. the ones who have a video that talk about the process of mindfulness is, you know, if thoughts and feelings are like cars on a freeway, you can be in the car with it, zooming down the highway. And that's the one where we are being driven by emotions and our prefrontal cortex may be shut off and we're just like, boom, with it. Or we can step out of the car and sit on the side and watch the emotions and thoughts go by. And I think that's the frame of mind that we want to have when pulling in these different types of data. I love that. And I love us being able to step out of ourselves and kind of be objective to what we may be experiencing or feeling or what's happening. But to me, that also feels like a skill in and of itself. And so I feel like I have the skills to do that because I've spent a couple years going to my therapist and I have a wellness coach. And like, I can imagine, I guess the question is like, is this something that you help when you're coaching through decisions, helping your clients go through decisions? Is that something that you help them kind of externalize? Or is that like a a prerequisite skill that is needed Mm -hmm. in order to actually be able to do that? And so this is where I find some of these frameworks from decision analysis or even decision mapping. So getting things on paper can be really useful, right? I've run workshops where there's a particular exercise that I use where I just ask people to take 90 seconds and put on paper all of the thoughts, feelings, what ifs, questions that they've been carrying around a decision. 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. And somehow even just by externalizing that, again, giving them a process by which they can get out of the car and just look from the Mm -hmm. side of the road begins that process. They may have never gone to therapy before. They may not even be able to name the emotions. They might just describe, like, I feel a tightness in my chest or a feeling like there are ants crawling on me, Mm -hmm. but there's something there. And that first step of shedding those things, putting it somewhere where we can look at it, And then providing people with structures to sort through it Mm -hmm. can be a really powerful exercise. What this is bringing up for me, and you talk about decision mapping, connecting that to our previous conversation around fast and slow thinking, and the reasons why, I can speak for myself, I failed to prioritize my own joy, prioritize my own wellness. Mm -hmm. And it's because I have been in a perpetual elevated or triggered state where I'm going through the motions, haven't slowed down to count the cost of this extra, I mean, it could literally be, could be about Cheetos or French fries or whatever, (laughs) things I love and I will continue to eat. But like, there's probably a certain rhythm. There's a system that I could put into place if I were to slow down and think things through. And so to me, it feels like decisioning should be happening at multiple levels. And Mm -hmm. I love your perspective on this. There's one, I mean, at the various highest level, I think about sort of fast and slow countries. So what are the policies that are in place that enable certain decisions that happen Mm -hmm. within organizations? So fast and slow companies. What are the policies that HR leaders put into place that enable moving down to fast and slow sort of employees or just individuals, humans, Mm -hmm. that make it easier to make the decision on sort of the food that you eat or the sleep that you might have, you know, things like that. I guess my question to you is, number one, it probably sounds like a a very macro and cultural question, but to what extent (laughs) do you feel like we as a society have 
the tools, like to what extent have the tools that you have spent your lifetime sort of studying and sharing with others, do you feel like they're proliferating? Do you feel like we're getting to a place now where we might be equipped to sort of care for ourselves and others because we now have better tools on decisioning? Or do you feel like, do you find that culturally society, we are lacking seriously in this? And mm-hmm. this is getting better here is maybe one of the key things that will help us lead us to a more thriving, well society. What are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Well, okay, I'm going to speak to just where we are coming out of the past two years of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. If there is something that I've seen over the past two years, I'm seeing that going through everything that has happened in the past two years and the stress of it, the trauma of it is prompting people to examine what's important to them. And I think that has been actually a really valuable first step in being able to make decisions that are more aligned with what's important to us, like what lights us up, mm-hmm. what drives our joy, even just taking the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Objectives, and taking the time Look, to notice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think also once we're more aware of, you know, what is it that is important and we start comparing it to the current state of things, mm. if they are in misalignment, often that precipitates this motivation to seek out other options. And I think that's also something where we are living in a very interesting time, at least when I think about the world of work, where companies and even just careers and roles are moving at a pace where new things are being created every day. And there's a whole lot more variety in the options that we have, not only in the types of roles that are available, but the ways in which we work, the different ways we can arrange income streams and all of those different things that did not exist in our parents' generation. And so I think there is this huge opportunity right now where People are, or maybe they just were forced to have space to think about what matters to them. And, you know, there's been a proliferation of options that are being generated. And also, I think culturally, it's becoming more acceptable to not just what do you want to be when you grow up, but like not have an answer to that or Mm -hmm. be willing to make decisions about that over and over because it's not as if we are tied to a single career for the rest of our lives anymore. And so there's huge opportunity here if people want to seize it. But I think also there's overwhelm, there's paralysis. I had lunch with one of my mentors, Barry Schwartz, the other week, he wrote The Paradox of Choice. And yes, like having so many different options Mm -hmm. and then this added level of, oh, now the decisions we make are so closely tied to our identity and they have like, what does it mean when we choose to do something adds this pressure. Mm -hmm. That's part of what pretty much at the crux of what I'm up to. Like Mm -hmm. I see this opportunity, but I also see a lot of stress and overwhelm. And I'm hoping that the tools that I share with people can help people get through the stress and the overwhelm so they can take advantage Mm -hmm. of the unique opportunities that exist at this point in time. And thank you for that, because I was just in a conversation two days ago with a leader that I deeply respect. And she said, it's not so much the great resignation that I'm focused on. She said, I'm focused in thinking a lot about the great reconsideration moment that Mm -hmm. we're in. Mm -hmm. And reconsideration, as you sort of were speaking, I was like, oh, wow, I I didn't even connect the two, but it's really about decisioning. And I agree a lot. I mean, I'm sure I feel it myself too. Realignment, thinking about my values, but then also tons of options, 
there's sort of excitement and paralysis all sort of connected in these things. And so thank you for that. I think it's very clarifying now to sort of almost, I feel like you start to, you, you speak to a decision engineer, you meet one at dinner and you never think the same. <laughs> it's like <laughs> life has changed. Goodness gracious. I don't even know what question to ask you now. <laughs> I have, I want to ask, and you mentioned this before earlier, particularly as it relates to this idea of regret, the idea of options, the stress, all of those things. But then you also kind of like couple that with we are not our decisions or how our identity is not tied to the decisions we make or the outcomes from our decisions. And so can you talk us through what does that separation actually look like practically? Like how do we practically begin to actually separate ourselves from these really big decisions that we have to make, have made, might start feeling some regret about what are your, what are your thoughts there? I do want to say our identities are born out of the decisions that we make. There's this really great TED talk. I think her name is Ruth. I forget her last name, but she talks about how the decisions we make over time produce our identity. Mm -hmm. But I do, again, want to draw that distinction between our decisions and the outcomes. Mm -hmm right? Because our decisions, that's the part that we can control. Decisions are about what we can control. They're not about like what we can't control. It's what is it that we are choosing to do. Outcomes, there may be things that happen. And sometimes in hindsight, that can be a blurry line. Sometimes it's impossible to extract, but it is useful to, I think part of the reason why I believe so much in the power of decision making is because it's all about looking for where do you have agency. It's not about just the big decisions, but where are you looking for the opportunity to decide even after things that may not have been in your control happen, right? It's not just about how did things turn out, but also what do you do next? And that's where I love that three components framework to decision-making objectives, options, information. Whenever any one of those components change, you have a new opportunity to make a decision. So if your objectives change over time, I think before this, we were talking about my objectives a decade ago, different from my objectives mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. If your objectives change, you can make a new decision. When you have new options or just a different set of options available, there's an opportunity to make a new decision if you choose to take it or if it makes sense for you. And same thing as there's new information that arises over time, mm -hmm. there are possibilities to make new decisions. Mm -hmm. How do you coach your clients through the external factors that might be weighing in on their decisions? So for instance, when you talk about our values or priorities might change, they might be very different from what they were 10 years ago. However, you as an individual might be able to feel and sense that shift, but you know that perhaps your partner or the people that you're in close relationship with or your job, what like there might be other factors that actually kind of weigh in on you starting to make new decisions that realign with your new priorities. And so how do you begin to coach your clients through how much weight they put on that? That's information, it's data. How do you begin to coach them through that? I mean, sometimes I'll ask, Seth Godin is one of my mentors and one of his favorite questions or his favorite pair of questions seems to be, who is it for and what is it for? And I think that who is it for question is an interesting one because when we're defining what our objectives are, sometimes our objectives include other people. Like sometimes, you know, part of the objectives that I have right now includes considerations for my aging parents. 
but it may not include, and this is where I draw the line, it may not include what they think about my line of work. My objectives may be to be able to support them when they need me to, mm-hmm. but may not include. And so I think getting into the what parts of those external factors do matter and that we want to choose to make a part of our decision making mm-hmm. is useful. Because when we take ownership of that, when we say, you know what, actually, I do care about this other person and the impact this decision has that I'm making has on them. That's when we're we're bringing it into, okay, I'm taking a stand and saying, yes, this is one of my objectives, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being in kind of the sea tossed by the winds of what's external to us. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking about it more so in the context of if we think about prioritizing our joy and our well-being and Mm -hmm. how that might inevitably impact other people, particularly in the cases where One of the things that I have observed in our line of work is that it's really hard for people to prioritize themselves over work or over Mm. a lot of other stressors that might be pulling at them. And so when Mm. they're considering all of those stressors, what weight are they giving them when they start to make their decisions? And so practically speaking, how do we start to leverage that data, that information, those objectives that we might have in order to actually daily prioritize our joy, prioritize our wellness? You know, what's coming up for me, I work with a lot of people who have an analytical background. Mm. And so they, they love when I talk data. And sometimes <laughs> I'll, I'll tell them, well, you know, can you keep a log? Can you start collecting this data set? And I think it might be interesting, you know, for people who are struggling with prioritizing joy over things like work to start a log Mm. around joy or around happiness. That's actually something that I've given clients before. And what I've used is Martin Seligman's PERMA framework. So Martin Seligman, he has done a lot of research in positive psychology. He wrote Flourishing and Authentic Happiness. And one of the things he talks about is how our happiness comes from a number of different sources. And the acronym PERMA, P-E-R-M-A, provides categories for these things. And so P is positive emotion. E is engagement. These are like, you know, things that you really love doing. R is relationships, specifically positive relationships. Mm. M is meaning and purpose, what makes things worth it even when they're not engaging and don't provide positive emotion. And then A is for accomplishment. And I think it'd be interesting, you know, for people even to just start tracking, like at the end of the day, where is it that they felt that happiness and joy? Where was it coming from? Or was there just not? And it just felt like a drain. Because I think sometimes, especially, I think Brian was talking about how there are cultural and societal things in play. We live, at least in the US, we live in a culture and a society, especially on the corporate side of things, that rewards overwork, Mm -hmm. that rewards putting productivity ahead of our own needs, Mm. that glorifies lack of sleep, glorifies workaholism and all of these different things. And again, it's kind of like a fish in water. They don't see the water unless they're out of it, Mm. right? And so how is it that we can unplug from that reward system Mm. and start identifying and noticing our own? And sometimes collecting daily data can be a path towards that. That's powerful. Recognizing your own reward system. I like that. (laughs) 
During this episode and our coaching together, I have a few frameworks, and I just want to take a a beat uh, towards the end of my last question. I have attractive and concerning, above the line, below the line. I have. Oh, yeah, I don't know if we tra- talked about that in this podcast. Do you want me we to do my voiceover? Well, yeah, please <laughs> add, add this to perhaps to your list. So for me, I, yeah. I, I know that would love for you to explain that objectives, options, and information, and then the PERMA framework. And I guess my question for you is, are there other sort of frameworks, people, books, things that you would sort of point us to as we are collectively on this journey of of decisioning and prioritizing and learning how to care for ourselves and others. There are a lot of books. There are probably so many. (laughs) There's lots of bits and pieces of books that I would recommend. I'm going to plug my own podcast as a resource. So I run a podcast called Ask a Decision Engineer. It'll be in its fourth season this summer. And um, there's- Congratulations. Thank you. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different types of episodes. And so if you listen to the podcast, season two is all about many lessons about these different components in these these frameworks around decision making. Season three is all about emotions Mm -hmm. in decision making and what does that sometimes look like uh, as people are sifting through decisions. That's a lot of you get to listen in on coaching sessions that I had with people. Season four, I'll be bringing in actually a lot of authors and professors and mm-hmm. some of my colleagues in the field to talk about what they are seeing and what they would find uh, they would offer up as useful to this audience. And so that's definitely I, I love Martin Seligman's work. And but I don't remember which book I would recommend. But if you Google Martin Seligman, Perma, I mean, he's done a lot on happiness and that piece of things. If you want to geek out about frameworks and all that stuff, people are also welcome to just reach out and email me, mm-hmm. put it out there, michelle at michelleflorendo.com. I love hearing from people because I find that it it drives my work forward because my hope is that sometime after my younger one goes off to school and I have a bit more time on my hands, mm-hmm. when I'm asked this question that you just asked me, I could recommend my own book. Yes. But that's okay for that. <laughs> and looking forward to that. I mean, four seasons in, of a podcast is incredible. And we're just looking forward to even more of your work and sharing your wisdom with us. So thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. I would love for you to talk lastly about or in addition about your alternative to the pro-con list. And so Ah, we talked about this when we, when you took us through the coaching session that we had individually Mm -hmm. with you. So what is your perspective on the pro-con list and what is your alternative for it? Yeah. You know, the pro-con list, I like the pro-con list because it does, again, it's that first step in, in externalizing what might be happening inside of us and putting it on a page where we can see it. But I find that it does have its limitations. I think even just pro and con, that language gets us really judgy and activates just our prefrontal cortex and doesn't allow for the broader range of experience that may be surfacing as we're facing a decision. And so I like to recommend that people make a twist on the pro-con list. And so uh, what that looks like is whenever you're facing a decision, in order to take that first step and really understand what is it that matters, because I can talk about, oh, yes, know what your objectives are. What is it that matters to you? But sometimes Mm -hmm. that's really hard to articulate in the moment. And so this exercise can help people unearth what some of those themes may be. Mm -hmm. So it just starts with drawing a horizontal line 
on your piece of paper. And then on the left-hand side, label above the line attractive and below the line concerning. And those words are very intentional because if you think about what's attractive, that activates like how we think about things somatically when we're drawn to something versus repelled by something, mm. right? Concerning gives us permission to tap into our emotions. Mm. You know, what are some of our fears around this? And what may that fear be of, right? And so once you have attractive and concerning above the line, below the line, then you can start evaluating the different options you may be considering. It also could be just different states of reality. And when people think about big life or career decisions, you could even have just a past, like that last job that I had, current job, Mm -hmm. and then what I'm hoping for for in the future type of thing. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot more flexibility in this framework. And then you go ahead and just jot down. What are the thoughts and feelings that come up? And then by the end, again, you have this raw data that you can then mine for themes. What are some of the key themes you're seeing emerge and what matters to you? And then from there, you can start refining things, getting really concrete about, okay, well, oh, I'm seeing finances is really important to me. Is that really an end or is that a means to an end? Mm. Why are finances important? Oh, because I want to be able to, to do this and this. Oh, okay. What would be satisfying? What would be a satisfying range for support or whatever it may be, right? And you can then get more concrete. And it's when we get really concrete about what matters that it becomes easier to define Mm -hmm. what our priorities are and to make decisions based on that. Thank you. I think getting clear about what matters is a big takeaway for me. The reward system, I think you mentioned our own internal reward system, being able to create the space to like take a step back and observe, Mm -hmm. get out of the car and look at kind of the emotions and the data that we can capture from that. Thank you, Michelle. This has been a very rich conversation. I really appreciate it. And I, yeah, I'm grateful that we were able to connect with you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. This was fun. Thank you again for being here and for honoring us with your time. This podcast is created by With Wellness, hosted by Amy and Brian Lattimore, produced by Joseph Ayani. Music and graphics will be linked in the comments and show notes. Before we part ways, we offer you a moment of peace. Take these next 60 seconds to simply breathe. your day, remember, you deserve to be prioritized.